Amen. Take your Bible this morning and turn, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 as we look at verses 13 through 17. You know, there are lives that make a difference. Uh, we, we understand that. There are lives in our experience. There are teachers. There are workmates. There are supervisors. There are all kinds of people that make a difference in who we are. We, we could list some of those, could we not? We could just kind of sit back for a moment and we could think about all the different people that have made a difference in our lives. And we know this. Lives count. They do. They can affect who we are. They can affect our experience. Lives do count. Over the last really few months, since January itself, I've been challenging us as a people to make it count for the Lord. I've been challenging us to look at the lives of the Scripture and really allow that to challenge who we are as we live each day according to His kingdom and according to His purposes. And there are wonderful stories in the Scripture. There are wonderful stories in history itself. I mean, of people who've made a difference. The last few that we talked about, you remember back in January? Who did we start with? You can tell he made it count. You can tell, I, gathering, I hope you are a whole lot better at remembering than this group in here is. We talked about David. We talked about how David made it count. We talked about, we talked about a woman named Esther. We talked about a man named Joseph. All over these last few months, we've talked about those biblical characters and how their lives counted for the kingdom. Now, how they had ups and downs, but yet somehow God used them for, their, for the kingdom purposes. But today I want to begin a series on the greatest life of all. Because while every one of those individuals contributed to the kingdom, and while there are people who influence us even this day, the greatest life of all, the life of Jesus, impacts everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we are. I mean, think of it just a moment. We all could agree with that, right? We could agree that today Jesus has made the most impact upon our lives. I hope that we could agree with that. I mean, the, the whole purpose of us being here this morning is to elevate the name of Jesus. It is not to elevate the name of a preacher. It is not the, the moment to elevate the name of a church itself. It is to elevate the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's the reason we exist. That's our purpose, is to make him known among the nations. That is what we should agree to. But I would say to you, if you look at history, even from an objective standpoint, Jesus has made the greatest difference of any other person that's ever lived. Last Wednesday night I shared, because I do love this, I, I love the fact that even the skeptic or the atheist, even those who would dismiss the name of Jesus, even they proclaim his existence every time they write the date, every time they put down, for example, what is today? September, the some of you are living in the right day. September 23rd, 2018. Every time you mention that or write that, you declare the very existence of God, right? 
Because why, why is this 2018? It is because of Jesus. Because Jesus himself divided history. It is A.D. in the year of our Lord. You see, he has impacted everything. He's impacted history itself. He's impacted our lives. He has transformed us. He has made his life count. And as we go through this study, we recognize that he indeed is the hero of history and he is the hero of Scripture. While those others in Scripture challenge us, there is no other like Jesus. Because all of Scripture points toward Christ. All of Scripture exalts Christ. All of these who have lived, the Old Testament, New Testament characters, all of their lives somehow were used to somehow bring about the kingdom work and exalt ultimately the name of Christ. So I want us to begin the life of Christ today. I want us to begin studying it and looking through that and allowing it to challenge us. And I want us to begin actually in Matthew 3 because here is the public initiation of Jesus' ministry. Here at his baptism. Matthew gives it to us this way, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The public initiation of Jesus' ministry for some 30 years, some 30 years, he had been prepared. He was getting ready to launch this public ministry to follow the will of his father, to seek him, obviously learning from his earthly father, Joseph, in carpentry, and also studying with those young men there in Nazareth as they would look to the scripture. Jesus had been preparing for this moment, and now the father had given him the liberty to begin this public ministry. And how does he do it? He does it by submitting himself to baptism. Now he comes before John, that's his cousin, remember? And he comes to John, and John's been baptizing people, and Jesus is going to submit himself to John's baptism. And you can imagine how John reacted. It's shown to us here in Scripture, but you can almost be there, right? Jesus coming to you and saying, hey, I need you to baptize me. And John, the baptizer, protests. He looks at Jesus and he says, what? You want me to baptize you? You need to be baptizing me. I know who you are. I know you are the lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world. You need to be the one who would baptize me. You could hear the protest, could you not? And you would have protested in a similar way. And Jesus said, no, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it was part of the Father's will and the Father's plan for him to be baptized. There are many people who have 
tried to tried to dig in more and say, how, you know, why was Jesus baptized? Was it to validate the ministry of John the baptizer? Well, certainly it brought validation to him. What was it so that he could identify anew and afresh with us? Because he's going to give baptism a new meaning, right? In a sense, it's going to carry the meaning that John had, which was a baptism of repentance. That's what John's baptism was. You come to be baptized because you are repenting of your sins. Again, the reason John protested, because Jesus had no sins to be repenting of. And yet, Jesus is going to take this rite, this baptism, and he is going to fill it with new meaning because... As we see in the church's life, we do repent of our sins, but we also know new life in Christ Jesus. We know as we express that through baptism itself. Again, it could be just a moment to initiate the public ministry. And it was um, that time when God was going to use his son to begin a new phase of kingdom work. Some have said that it was like a ceremonial washing because the priest, before they would enter into the temple, they would go through the waters of baptism as a ceremonial type of cleansing. And here Jesus is to initiate that as well because he's about to begin his priestly work. Jesus says, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. The Father's asked me, the Father is, he has commissioned me and I am following in righteousness. And what a scene. I mean, some of you, you've been to baptisms. And you've seen people baptized. And you never know what's going to happen, right? Now, some of you all, now listen, some of you all don't see behind the scenes. You don't know all the prep, and you don't know all the practicality, and you don't know all those kinds of things that happen. But it seems like, for me at least, through the years, things always happen. I don't know if you remember, but the first, like, few baptisms we had here, it was, it was kind of exciting. There was one young man I went to baptize. I put him under the water, and I was bringing him back up. He remained limp. So he went back down. <laughs> Doc Belden was there that day. He thought the guy had passed out. Doc was coming down in his suit and everything. You didn't know this because, man, we are, we are slick, you know. <laughs> I asked the young man afterwards, I said, what were you doing? Did you pass out for a minute? He's, he, was like, he was like, no, I thought you were doing everything. I just needed to remain limp, you know. And that, I'm like, well, at least stand back up if you ever do it again. You don't have to do it again, but if you ever did. I remember a, a guy down in Picayune, old Mr. Ernest. I loved him. He was an older man when he came to faith in Christ. And uh, he came in, and I was going to... Uh, baptize him and he looked at me before we went down the steps and he said uh brother reggie he said you know that i wear a toupee <laughs> how do you answer something like that by the way <laughs> i was like well i thought you might it's very good it's very good looking but i thought i thought you i thought you might Ernest." but he said well listen he said brother reggie if we get in that water and you put me under and it comes off you keep me down till I get it back on, he said. <laughs> I said, Ernest, I will accommodate you as best as I can. We'll see what happens. 
There are all kinds. I could tell you story after story of baptisms. And a lot of times, and, and look, even, even with all that, right? E- even with all the crazy stuff that goes on, a baptism can be so significant. And it can be so special. Because just like I told you about Ernest and what he was telling me, Ernest had come to faith later in life. He had been wondering for so long, and yet he had come to Jesus. And when I baptized him, and he came, and he began to serve in the Lord, and it was just an incredible moment. So even despite all the craziness behind that, it was such a special time, and a significant time. How about the special significance, the moment when Jesus submits himself to John the baptizer to experience this baptism and to experience the affirmation of the Father and of the Holy Spirit in his life. You see, when I look at this passage and I think about his baptism, what I see is the sonship of Jesus. I see Jesus as the Son. I mean, it says when he comes up out of water after the immersion and he comes up after the water... From the water, it says, Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. It speaks to the sonship of Jesus, that Jesus was the Son of God. This voice from heaven, that this is my Son. As he begins his public ministry, it is a declaration that Jesus is unlike any other person who has ever lived or who will ever live. He is the Son of God. Yes, as you go and look at this passage, you'll actually see that there is the definite article, the Son. He is the Son, mine, the beloved one. There is no one else like Him. And in that title, Son of God, There is expressed deity. That Jesus is divine. That Jesus is himself God. Now, there are many, many scriptures we could look at to speak to the Trinity, to speak to the Godhead, one God, three persons. But this one, it expresses it so well, does it not? We believe in what's called the Trinity. And that is what most Orthodox Christians believe. If you are in a mainstream Christian walk in truth, and for many, many years we have taught there is the Trinity. One God, three persons. One God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately there are those who who have tried to explain the Trinity away a little bit, and there are even some churches around that have gathered a lot of people, and what they've they've taught and they say is that, well, it it just seems like there were three people. Like they just appeared to be three people. It's a modalistic kind of idea that that these persons just seem to show up at certain times, like in the Old Testament, the Father. It was kind of like the Father. God showed himself... As the Father. In the New Testament, God showed Himself as the Son. In the New Testament church, God shows Himself and expresses Himself as the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, that 
is as unbiblical of a doctrine as I've ever heard. He did not just show himself or reveal himself. There is one God in three persons. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, just like here in this passage. I mean, how, do, how would you reconcile it any other way but seeing that here Jesus is in the incarnate form who is being baptized and the Father speaks out of heaven and the Holy Spirit is descending. It is a Trinitarian passage if you could ever find one. As someone has said, it would be hard for Jesus to practice ventriloquism here at this point, right? That he would have somehow thrown his voice and made it sound like it was a heavenly voice. It's ridiculous to even consider. But the Father is speaking his affirmation of the Son. Jesus being the Son of God says to us that he is divine, that he is God. He is truly who he says he is. All of the scripture points to that. Colossians. Paul says, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus. John identified him as the Word, which was in the beginning. And the Word was God. Remember John chapter 1? He was the Logos. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about how that is the defining principle behind all of the world. It is the idea that Jesus is the one purpose behind everything else that exists. He is the divine logos, as the Greeks would understand. Paul wrote to Titus and said, this one is our great God and our Savior. John, as he is writing the Revelation, and as he is recording the words of Jesus, what does he say? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I love that. The idea is, I am from the beginning to the end. You might say it this way, I'm from A to Z and I'm everything in the middle as well. I'm L-M-N-O-N-P. I'm everything. And Jesus himself, John chapter 10, declared, I and the Father are one. That was a claim of deity. You don't believe me? Look at the Jewish ruler's response. What did they want to do after Jesus said, I and the Father are one? They took up stones to kill him because they believed he had just committed blasphemy. Understand that they knew that Jesus was making a claim of divinity and deity. And the high priest, the high priest, as he is questioning Jesus that Thursday night into Friday morning before Jesus' death, the high priest asked, are you the Son of God? And Jesus responds, you've said it. Just as you've said. And just know one of these days you will see the Son sitting at the right hand, coming in heavenly clouds. Says the high priest tore his clothes that he began to weep and cry blasphemy for what Jesus had claimed. I want you to see that here and throughout the scripture, as we talk about the life of Jesus, we're not talking about just another human. We're talking about God. He is the God-man. Oh, that makes a difference in who we are. 
If Jesus is not just another human, he's not just another teacher, he's not just some kind of ethical leader that people look at, Jesus is God. He is divine. And he claims authority over our lives. So he is the son, the son of God. But it speaks not only to his deity, it speaks to his role. I want you to see this. Again, the role of Jesus as it is expressed through his baptism. It, it, it says here, the Father speaks, this voice from heaven speaks, He is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's awesome to know that you have the approval, the affirmation of your parents, isn't it? I, I, I think it's an awesome thing to know that your, uh, your parents could speak such powerful words in your life. It, Robert Lewis, Reston High grad, you've heard me quote him before. But Robert Lewis says in this passage that you find some language that every father in particular ought to use with his children. When, when the father is speaking out of heaven, he said, again, this is my son, right? My beloved one, my beloved son, the one in whom I am well pleased. So in other words, he's saying, I love this. I love this son. He's my beloved son. And Robert Lewis says all of us fathers in particular, and I would say mothers too, ought to look at our kids and say, I love you. I think all our kids need to hear from their parents that they are loved. Now, sometimes we know it. But isn't it awesome to hear it? Sometimes we know, look, I grew up in a household that, um, that was very emotionally disconnected, except when people got mad. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they could, they could connect emotion to my behind. You know what I'm talking about? But it wasn't one of those things that we readily told people that we loved one another. We just didn't do that. It was just kind of when we grew up, we just, just didn't kind of do that kind of stuff. It was, it was kind of it was kind of weird. Those people that said that all the time, they were weird. You'd come from church and you'd hear somebody say, I love you. And it was kind of like, woo. You don't say that stuff. Do you know how liberating and powerful it was in my life when my dad prayed over me when I was being ordained. He was an ordained deacon. And he passed around like all the other guys. Some of you have been there. He laid hands on me. And I remember him saying distinctly for the very first time in my life, I love you. It was a powerful moment to have such affirmation and approval and to hear it. I knew that my dad loved me. I knew when we went on um, quail hunts or when he... Uh, Hey, help provide food on the table. I knew he loved me. But there was something about hearing it and, and seeing it. And here the father says, I love, this is my beloved son. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. But one thing we need to tell our kids is that we love them. Also, we need to tell them that we're proud of them. Look at what the father says here. In whom I am well pleased. I am so proud of him. Can you hear this? The voice from heaven. I love this. I love this son. And I am so proud of him for what he is doing and who he is. I'm well pleased. 
This seems so good to me. Hey, it's liberating to speak into your child's life and to, and to say to them, I'm proud of you. I love you, and I'm proud of you for who you are. Well, later on, not this passage, but the transfiguration, you remember you have a similar scene, right? I mean, very similar. The Father speaks out of heaven, and he'll say again, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But he'll add something. He'll look at the disciples, and he'll say, listen to him. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. He's good at this. He, he, and for us, again, as Robert Lewis would say to us, not only should we say to our kids that we love them and that they, we are proud of them, we should look at them and we should say, hey, you're, you know what, you're, you're good at this. You, and, and tell them specifically what they're good at. But here's Jesus, the Son, who the Father expresses love to, but as I said, expresses this approval He's proud of him because he's fulfilling his role, right? Because the Son of God, that designation says that Jesus is God, but it also says that Jesus has a role to play. And Jesus has a role to obviously come to this earth, and what he's going to do is pay the price for us. Why is the Father proud of Jesus? Well, you could name many, many reasons probably. But I would say to you here in this point, as he is initiating his public ministry, the Father is proud that Jesus has accepted the mission and the purpose that he has sent him with. And that Jesus is about to embark upon a life of sacrifice here on this earth. He's proud. He's pleased. Jesus understood his role too. I said it a couple weeks ago. The first words out of Jesus' mouth. You remember that? The first words recorded in Scripture. I should say that. The first words that are recorded in Scripture that come out of Jesus' mouth. Remember what the first words are? I must be about my Father's business. First words. Now, I know Jesus said other things, and I know he was a baby, and he probably made the ooze and ahs, and he did all that. I, I got that. But the first words recorded in Scripture about this Jesus, it must be about my father's business. He was like 12. must be about my father's business. The whole purpose of my coming was because of the Father. The Father sent me. The Father has a plan for me. I am submitting to the Father's business and his purpose. So here's the father speaking out and saying, I'm well pleased. In other words, Jesus knew that he had a role, he had a purpose, he had a plan, and as he was fulfilling it, the father spoke into his life, and the father said, I'm well pleased in this man because this one, is a, he, is, he is faithful to what I've called him to do. Now, I, I think we could dig into this some more, but some of y'all are still lamenting your loss last night. The only one paying attention this morning is Lloyd, looks like. So, <laughs> think of this. Jesus, as the Son of God, had all deity about him, all power and all authority. And yet, he willingly 
submitted to the Father for the role that the Father had for him. <laughs> Think. This should speak to us in our relationships. And like I said, I'd love to dig into it a little more. Just don't have time this morning. It should, the relationships of the Trinity ought to inform the relationships that we have on this earth. And what do I mean by that? Is some of us have all authority and all power to do certain things in our lives. And yet, we should still seek to live a life of submission just like Jesus did. There are roles. I'm going to probably ruffle some feathers here, but it's okay. There are roles in the family life. Parents are the authority over the children. In a case of marriage, the husband ought to give leadership to the wife. In a workplace, there are people who have supervisory roles over others. It does not mean that, that there is inequality. Jesus was equal to the Father in power and prestige and status. And yet, Jesus willingly submitted to the role that the Father had called him to. I say to you that when so many of us get so upset about the idea of submitting, all we've got to do is look at the life of Jesus. And it would be a little, a little easier to submit to others as God calls us. Here is Jesus. He is submitting to his role to bring about a new life, to bring about, I would say, a new creation, the image the Holy Spirit coming down is like a dove. This idea of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says that the Spirit hovered over the waters. Remember that? That the Spirit itself, himself, was engaged in the creation activity. So he was hovering over the waters. That word hover is the same word that can speak to the fluttering of birds' wings. So whereas Genesis 1-2 speaks about a creation that was coming about, what I see in this passage, as I've understood it and as I've studied it, is that basically the Holy Spirit coming is saying, this one Jesus is about to bring about a new creation. It's like the Spirit is hovering again over the waters. The, the Spirit is hovering as a dove over Jesus Christ. And he is saying there is a new creation coming. And certainly there was a new creation. You and I... New creatures in Christ Jesus. Jesus had submitted himself to that role of bringing about the creation. And this is where I want to just close with. When you look at the love of the Father for the Son, it should challenge us and speak to us about the love that he has for us and who we are. I went back again, looked at the original language. I, I could translate it something like this. Some might challenge me. That's okay. They can be wrong. But I would translate it something like this. This is the Son. Mine. 
the one that I love with deep commitment, the agape type of love of the New Testament. I love him with everything that I have. This is my son. When I think of that love and then I compare it to Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was saying, but yet God loved you so much. He loved the world that he was willing to give me to you. What an expression of love. It is a love superior to any other. Outside of my love for my wife, there are no others I love more than my children. Outside of that relationship, that earthly relationship with my wife, there is no other rela earthly relationship like that one, that, those that I have with my children. Some of you know that I have four children. Leslie and I have four. She, I notice I put Leslie and I, because she would say, oh yeah, you claim them when it's convenient. <laughs> Leslie and I have four children. There are only strange people that have four children. Right, Loy? The Nugents coming up and all of that. I can't imagine for a moment willingly giving them up for somebody else. I love you. You've heard me say that. I love you with all my heart. I love Temple Baptist Church. I look around. I love you. But I'm not sure I see one person in here that I would really willingly give my child up. Some of you say, oh, I can't believe you'd say that. I think if you were truthful, not many of you would do that either. And yet, the Father willingly did it for us. And not only did the Father willingly do it for us, the Son willingly accepted the role and the purpose. This is my Son! This is, this is the one, mine, the one that I've loved for all of eternity. Think about this, fellowship for all of eternity, because Jesus just didn't come into being in, Beth, in Bethlehem. He was from the beginning, and he will be to the end. He is everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal for all of eternity itself. The Father and the Son had been in fellowship together they still enjoy fellowship even though the Son now has taken on the incarnate flesh. And yet, the Son has come on our behalf that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Folks, there is no other love like the love of God for us. That he loved you and me. And let me add this. He loved you and me while we were hostile and rebellious toward his purposes and his plans. Don't miss it in Scripture. Scripture says we were strangers. We weren't part of the family. It's one thing to give up somebody for somebody you love and know and all. But for somebody that basically has spit in your face and what we did with our lives before we knew Christ Jesus, we were living in 
outward rebellion toward him. And yet he still loved us. What's the old song? When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. When Jesus was there and he looked down through all of history, because he could do that because he was God, right? And he could see us sitting here today. And he knew all of our problems and all of our sin. He still chose to stay on that cross so that we would know salvation and life because he loved us so. And the Father loved us so that he gave his one and only Son for us. We don't have to pay him back because guess what? We can never do that. But we ought to respond in faith and love and adoration and worship before a holy God who loved us so much that he was willing to give up his one and only for us and who we are. Today I pray that we would see him as the son of God and that we would worship him, that we would bow before him, we would commit our lives afresh to him. And for those of you who have not accepted him and given your life, I'm going to tell you, listen to me, there is no other love like the love of Christ. Don't, don't put it off. Accept the salvation that Christ has given so freely to you and to me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for the moments of reflection from your scripture. Thank you for reminding us, even through the baptism of our Lord, that he is the Son, full of deity, fully accepting the role that was given to him to bring salvation, the one who is fully loved and who showed that love for us. God, some of us are believers, but I admit that some of us take for granted the love that you've lavished upon us. May you call us back who are believers. May we celebrate your love. Father, for those in this place who have never accepted you as their Lord and Savior, may they walk down this aisle. May they surrender their hearts and lives. We pray it. In Jesus' name.